In what we're doing now, we are getting to a feel of the world that is neither organic nor mechanical. Simply what it is. We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary involuntary. We don't know the contrast organically. All right, folks, we're back. This is Vince Emanuele with Meditations in Molotovs. You're listening to the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. That was Three Teeth, the Industrial Metal Act out of L.A. And you can catch Meditations in Molotovs every Monday right here on the Progressive Radio Network. That's at 1 p.m. Central Time, 2 p.m. East Coast Time. So... Last week, we were talking about electoral politics. We were talking about sort of my history and being involved with electoral politics, my awareness of electoral politics, which honestly doesn't go back that far. I mean, as I mentioned in the previous show, I wasn't, you know, one of those folks in high school who really paid attention to these things. And there were people who were way ahead of the curve in that regard. And there were people who already were interested in politics at a young age, whereas I was not. And so we're dealing with a major contradiction here, the left, progressives, when we talk about electoral politics. On the one hand, as Noam Chomsky, I think, called the election cycle the quadrennial electoral extravaganza you know it's a spectacle and not only is it a spectacle but it takes energy and time away from maybe even more pressing issues these are all arguments people on the left would make about electoral politics the problem of course is that for a good portion of Americans well I'm sorry for a decent number of Americans, electoral politics are their entry into political activism. Most people, if you speak with them, became involved with political activism vis-a-vis some sort of an election. Could be a local election, could be a state election, uh, could be a national election. But one way or another, most people, including most progressives and most leftists, became involved with politics vis-a-vis the electoral process. Myself is, I would say, somewhat included in that, although my activism was primarily focused around anti- is primarily and was primarily focused around anti-war work anti-militarization and so forth so this is also a big dilemma for those of us i mean this is i have to be completely honest i mean and i this comes this is coming from someone who has from the beginning i've been encouraging people to support bernie sanders campaign not blindly not without criticism not without questions But generally, I think it was important for people on the left and progressives to support his campaign. 
and for a whole host of reasons. Not the least of which being an opening or the Sanders campaign providing an opening for left and progressive activists and social movements to step in, meet like-minded people, or meet perspective like-minded people, and to organize them, both within and without the election. So in other words, the most important part of the Bernie Sanders campaign is not to get Bernie Sanders elected. That, to me, is, has been very clear from the beginning. And the idea, you know, among the left, and you get this idea. I don't know if people have said it explicitly, but if you read a lot of the criticism about or directed at Bernie Sanders' campaign from the left, there's sort of this implicit notion that if indeed Bernie doesn't win the nomination, which it looks like he won't, something else we'll get into. Because my friends who are Bernie Sanders supporters are having a really tough time with the nuance. And so is the left. In fact, everyone is having a tough time with the nuance here. You know, this is a, these are very complex issues. We need to stop with the simplistic thinking, with the simplistic analyses, with the simplistic criticism. We need to stop with the simplicity. This isn't a simple, easy answer, yes or no. Is it good to organize with Bernie Sanders' campaign, yes or no? No, that's, that's not, it's not how it works. Part of it has been extremely productive. I have met people in this region and in the Chicagoland region, and I just had a great friend of mine in town who, I, I guess I, I could drop his name, but I'll wait and ask him if that's okay. But nonetheless, he's a great organizer from Chicago, someone I've known for 10 years, someone I organized with in the anti-war movement, someone who has organized uh, tenants in the city of Chicago fighting for tenants' rights with the Metropolitan Tenants Organization, someone who became involved with activism back in the late 90s, the WTO protests in Seattle, the battle for Seattle was where he sort of cut his teeth on political acts. So he's been involved for well over a decade now. Now he currently organizes restaurant workers. So he has a wide range of experiences and knowledge from organizing progressive political movements on the ground. This isn't so this is someone who is in his mid 30s. So he's a few years older than I am. And he has spent the last 15, 16 years of his life dedicated to mobilizing effective campaigns and broad mass movements, social movements, and very diverse movements. And he's extremely excited about the Bernie Sanders campaign. Now, he has criticisms of the campaign Something else we'll get into later. But he understands that for, a, for millions and millions and millions and millions of people around this country, that campaign is their only sort of conduit to 
progressive activism, progressive movements, left political thought. You think the tens of thousands of people who voted for Bernie Sanders in Wyoming and Idaho and so on, Utah, in those kinds of states or in northern Michigan or in Wisconsin, that there's not really a bigger progressive um, you know, sort of political machinery that they could plug into. Okay, in a city like Milwaukee, sure. In a city like Madison, sure. In some of the college towns in Michigan, okay. Even here in Indiana, uh, where I live, uh, okay. In Northwest Indiana, who? I mean, what is there really to do for people who are progressives? There's really not much. You know, in Chicago, it's different. In Chicago, in big, major metropolitan cities, major metro- metropolitan areas. There's plenty to do. Every single day in the city of Chicago, if you want to be politically active, you can be politically active. And with any number of issues. But for people who live maybe outside of those areas, or for people who live in cities that don't have that progressive political infrastructure, or who don't have the opportunity to plug in, to movements and so forth. Bernie Sanders campaign is where it's at. That's where the energy is. That's what people are talking about. That's where people are mobilized. That's where people have the resources to be mobilized. And that's where people are learning important skills. And so my friend Roberto, who came into town from Chicago, you know, we went around uh, Michigan City here where we're broadcasting from and knocking on doors and canvassing for the last couple of days. And it was a great experience. I mean, this is, oh gosh, I don't even know how many days, total days that I've spent knocking on doors, but it's a, it's a great skill. And it, you want to talk about bringing it back to the most fundamental, the most basic of issues or of tasks, or of skills. And one of the fundamental problems that I've encountered in the last 10 years of doing activist work has been the inability for the average person to talk to another average person. Could be their family, could be their friends, could be their coworkers, could even be their lovers about serious issues. And not only to just talk about these issues, but then to challenge and or encourage people in those close circles, in those close social circles that we all have, whether it may be you only have one friend or whether you have a hundred friends, to talk to that friend, to not only talk to that friend about these issues or that family member or your family members about these issues, but then to challenge one another to challenge each other, to do something about it. So we're living in a time when you don't have to convince too many people that things are screwed up. When I first became involved 10 years ago, this was in the mid, okay, so 2005, 2006. It wasn't as though everyone was living high on the hog. However, there was still a sense that this was America and it was the greatest country in the world and that, yes, okay, George Bush 
uh, and Jake Cheney and Rumsfeld and the whole Bush regime dis- absolutely destroyed the Constitution and trampled people's civil liberties and slaughtered millions of people around the globe in their geopolitical pursuits. But it wasn't an aberration. You know, a lot of people understood that. But a lot of people thought it was. A lot of people figured, hey, once we get this lunatic out of office, once we get Barack Obama in office, then things will change. Or at least maybe not significantly, but symbolically, things will change. But they didn't. For the, more, for the majority of people in the United States, their lives have gotten harder under Obama and since the 2008 financial collapse. So in that context, and after eight years of neoliberal economics, not only the Bush-Clinton variety, but also the Tea Party Congress variety, people are devastated. People know. In fact, people are extremely cynical. It's not that we're having a problem convincing people that things are bad. It's not that people in the United States are completely brainwashed and they don't know what's happening and, you know, they're just, uh, uh, they think everything's just hunky dory and things will work themselves out. That's not where people are coming from. That is not where people are coming from. Both the polling data indicates such. And also my anecdotal experiences indicate such. You talk to anybody. Talk to your neighbors. Go talk to your friends. Talk to your coworkers. You're telling me that the average American thinks that everything's okay? Obviously not. In this election cycle, especially not so. Both sides. I mean, this is interesting. I don't have cable news for the record. So I don't get to see much of the coverage The coverage I do see is vis-a-vis online sites. So I'm assuming these sites are illegal. I don't even know how they work. I basically just punch into Google, MSNBC streaming live, CNN streaming live, Fox News streaming live, and some site somewhere will come up where I can watch a little four-inch screen in the corner of my bigger screen, (laughs) and um, that's how I catch the mainstream news coverage. Now, I don't watch that very regularly because I think it's toxic and I, you know, it, it pisses me off. And most people I talk to, it pisses them off. Therefore, I think to myself, why are we watching things that piss us off? You know, of course, every once in a while you're going to run it or regularly you're going to run into information that's going to anger you. But to add to that, the glitz and the glamour and the sounds and the, and the images and the symbols and the the consumer trash and all the nonsense that's on cable news media. And obviously it's a very unhealthy medium. It's extremely unhealthy for people to be consuming that sort of garbage on a regular basis. Hence, I try not to do so. But when I do, I'll check it out online. And they've gotten it wrong from the beginning. You know, if you watch, go back and watch the replays Go back and read the op-eds. Go back and look at what conservative and liberal and centrist and so on and so on writers. Go look at what they were saying a year ago. 
Go look at what they were saying last summer. People thought, people genuinely thought, especially analysts from the Beltway and especially analysts from New York and from L.A. and from some of the more progressive states and areas and metropolitan areas in the United States, places like Seattle and Portland and Boston, Washington, D.C., and so forth. These analysts, these writers, these news commentators, shit, some of the, you know, political professionals, the political class, scholars even, they did not see Sanders and Trump. They didn't see them coming. They saw them. They said, oh, these are fringe candidates. This is, you know, these are... This is a fringe form of populism. This is a fringe form of xenophobia. This is a fringe form of racism. But it's not. It turns out in a society built on white supremacy, in a society in which our institutions are founded on white supremacy and so forth, that a xenophobic, outwardly and explicitly racist message actually does resonate with Tens of millions of Americans, not just in the South, not just in Rust Belt towns, but all over the United States. Tens of millions of white people support Donald Trump's message. Now, whether they support him because of his uh, sort of brashness, if it's a combination of all of these things, if it's a combination of his brashness, if it's also the fact that he tells it like it is or that he's a maverick or that he's a you know uh, willing to step up and say things about the political class that other uh, US presidential nominees in the past have been unwilling to talk about whatever it may be the analysts in the beltway the analysts on the east coast and the west coast were perplexed and are and remain perplexed just watch the news coverage and read the articles in the New York Times and Mother Jones and the Washington Post, in the Atlantic, in the New Yorker, in the Progressive, people remain perplexed at the rise, not only of Donald Trump, but also of Bernie Sanders. People didn't see it coming. Now, how people didn't see it coming, I think, is easy to understand. You know, if you spend the majority of your time in certain social, cultural, economic bubbles, then you're not going to know what's happening. If you look at 48, 40, say 40 to 45 states in this country as flyover states, then you don't understand what's happening. And if you haven't spent time in small-town America since the 2008 financial collapse... If you haven't spent time in places like Michigan City, Indiana, if you haven't spent time in places like Benton Harbor, Michigan, Ferguson, Missouri, Joliet, Illinois, Youngstown, Ohio, and these are actually sort of medium-sized areas, urban areas, towns and cities. If you haven't spent time in those kinds of places, Flint, Michigan, let alone the bigger cities, Cleveland, Detroit, St. Louis, Chicago, Southwest Side, Milwaukee, Cincinnati, Fort Wayne. If you have not spent time in places like this, 
Shoot, if you don't spend time in the Central Valley, California, if you don't spend time in Stockton and Chico, it's changing quickly. Lodi, the Inland Empire, Bakersfield, the deindustrialized former manufacturing zones, even in California, or in upstate New York. How often do the writers and the analysts for MSNBC and CNN spend time in Roth Rochester and Buffalo? How much time do they spend in Erie County? Probably not much. In fact, I know not much because not only do I have friends in those industries, but who tell me what the lifestyle is and what the perspective is. But I know just from doing a regular show in the past that if indeed you have to do a show seven, five days a week, you don't really have time to travel and to get a different perspective. But there's something happening in this country in towns and in cities and in states that people very rarely, if ever, talk about. In some places that people have never heard of. So how many people in the United States had heard of Ferguson, Missouri, prior to the murder of Michael Brown? Not many. Not many. But people in places like Ferguson, and people in places like Northwest Indiana, or the south side or the west side, they are at a breaking point. This is the point at which they break. There is not much more people can take. So more austerity, a global economy that is failing across the board. Yes, high growth in emerging markets. Yes, high growth, or at least relatively so in places like China, but slowing. Australia, slowing. The Japanese economy, I believe, is in its, what, eighth recession in almost as many years. The European economy is in shambles. The Canadian economy survives only because, they've only because they have decided that they will become an energy state. So basically, the wager for the liberals and the conservatives in Canada is that we will absolutely ravage and destroy the natural environment to make sure that we have some decent standard of living. And in the United States, where, we, we are barely, where the, this economy is growing at virtually 0%, or according to Jack Rasmus, actually negative. It's contracting. That's not going to get better anytime soon. And I think it's really important for people to know that. I mean, I have, it's depressing. It's not what people want to hear. It's not the most uplifting message. But the bottom line is that Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump are the tip of the iceberg. This isn't the end, it's not an outlier. This is exactly what the future will look like. You have on the uh, combined about a hundred. I'm assuming anywhere from 120 to 130 million Americans will vote in the general election. I think the numbers in 2000. I could probably look this up, but I, you know, somebody else can Google this at home. 
I believe the numbers in the 2012 election were around 125 million. So let's just use the same numbers. It'll probably be more, I would assume, but who knows? Let's just use the same numbers. 125 million registered voters who are going to vote. 60 to 65 million will go Democrat. 60 million to 65 million will go Republican. Let's just divide them right down the center. So what this means is that at least 30 million people, registered voters, will end up, will support Trump. They support Trump now. Out of those 120 million, about 30 million, maybe more, support Trump. The other 30 million on the Republican side support Kasich or Cruz or both or neither, or they're just voting against Trump. Let's leave that aside. 30 million support Trump. On the Democratic side, at least 25 to 30 million also support Bernie Sanders. And many, many more people have voted for Sanders than actually have voted for Trump. So millions and millions and millions of people support what, in more honest times, would be considered a New Deal Democrat, but what will, you know, for the sake of conversation, refer to him as a Democratic Socialist, someone who openly identifies as such. And what, again, in more honest times, we'd refer to as a fascist in Donald Trump. How is it some kind of a neo-fascism? Sure. But let's remember, it's not as though people have this warped vision of fascism. They have this idea that everything was bad under fascism. Or that every, like, so every policy for Mussolini was bad or that every single thing that the Nazis did was bad. No, it, that's not true. Um, overall, of course, those political projects are inherently corrupt, inherently oppressive, should be rejected at all turns. However, if we're going to take a nuanced view of what happened, I mean, we have to remember there were three new deals taking place almost 70 years ago now, 80 years ago. One in Germany, one in Italy, and one in the United States. And in fact, Roosevelt and the New Deal folks in the United States actually got a lot of their ideas from different New Deal projects or New Deal-esque-like projects in places like Italy and Germany. There's a really good book, forgetting the author's name, but the title of the book, I read it several years ago, was called Three New Deals. Part of the reason why the Italian wasn't as though the Italian government simply loved Mussolini because he was a violent man. And it's not as though German society simply loved Adolf Hitler because he wanted to exterminate people. These individuals, these dictators and their movements and their state apparatuses performed functions that people appreciated. Huge building projects, rail lines, public transportation, hospitals, and gigantic infrastructure programs that put millions of people to work, gave people a purpose, allowed them to reorientate themselves in society in a more meaningful fashion. These things matter. And they matter because if someone like Trump is to get into office, there could be programs like that. If he was smart, you know, I don't know 
uh, how vested the interests are, how um, ideologically insane the Republican Party is. Like, is there to to know is is there no way whatsoever that they will fund an infrastructure project? I mean, is that the case? That might very well be the case. But if Trump gets in office and starts doing those things, don't doubt for a second. Don't doubt for one second that he won't get more and more, that he will not receive more and more support from more and more Americans who desperately need good-paying jobs and who are more than willing to work on infrastructure projects. Don't be surprised. You know, and for people who think this is such an impossibility, oh, the polling numbers look bad now. The polling numbers now didn't look good for Romney as well. The polling numbers right now in 2008 didn't look good for McCain. They didn't, you know, they they showed a much more a much uh, um, you know much more dominating sort of performance by Obama than what ended up happening. So this idea that right now the poll like we should take these polling numbers to heart, the idea that Clinton will smash Trump if indeed those are the two nominees. I think is a little silly. But I think the bigger point that everybody here needs to keep in mind is that this is just the beginning. Global capitalism will continue to fail. That's without question. And if indeed it doesn't, the only way it it won't, or the only way that it will keep itself afloat, will be either in two ways and possibly both happening at the same time. A complete ravaging of the environment, like the Canadian economy, like that model, or clear-cutting forests, looking for tar sands, drilling in places we should never be drilling, not that we should be drilling at all, so on and so forth. So we'll... The, the only way for the U.S. economy to continue rolling is to absolutely ravage the natural environment, looking for natural resources. Natural resources that, by the way, of course, we won't even use here, which makes it even worse because the average American's being sold a bill of goods. So the average American is saying, okay, yes, maybe this is bad for the environment. However, if we're able to have cheaper fuel prices, because most people travel in this country to work and so on, some people are willing to take those risks. They're not being told the truth, of course. So that's one way to save capitalism. We have just absolutely destroy the environment even more than we're destroying it now. And that's a scary idea or scary prospect. Therefore, absolutely ensuring that we're all going to die in the coming decades, maybe 10 years, 20 years. I mean, according to people like Guy McPherson, we have till 2030 and then it's game over. Others argue it's 50 years. Others argue it's 100 years. To me, it doesn't matter much. The bottom line is that's the only way we can save. That's that's what this economy is not only built on, but the only way we can save this economy if it's you know, some people think it's worth saving. I don't. It's to absolutely destroy the environment. The other way would be, I would assume, some kind of a combination of like new sort of futurist ideas surrounding biotech, nanotech, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, 
and so forth. Someone like Jeremy Rifkin talks about this a lot. He, I think he wrote a book called The Third Industrial Civilization. The book that I have at the house is called Zero Marginal Cost Society. The changes he's talking about are illustrated, in an, for example, in, say, if you compare and contrast Kodak film with Instagram. You know, so Kodak, I think at its height, if I'm remembering this correctly and somebody can look this up, I think it employed anywhere from 300 to 400,000 people. And it serviced, say, a couple hundred million customers, Kodak, at its height or at the peak of the company's performance. Now, today, Instagram employs, I think it's less than four dozen. I think it's less than 50 people at its main office. So Instagram, less than 50 people, and services over, I think, uh, 1.7 billion. So those are the kind of changes that we're facing, major changes. Now, Rifkin and others, I think even Robert Reich, who just wrote a book called How to Save Capitalism or something along those lines, Thomas Piketty is another one. These are the folks who, who would like to save capitalism. They think it's worth saving, and they have sort of liberal progressive reforms um, sort of detailing how they would do that or how it's possible. Now, leaving aside the question of whether or not it's possible, we have to ask whether or not it's ideal, whether or not this is something we want, and it's not. You know, do we want something new? Do people want to create new economies, new ideas of how to trade, new ideas, new mediums for exchange? That to me sounds a lot more interesting. But the ideas that Bernie Sanders is bringing up and his supporters, those ideas aren't going anywhere. In fact, they're becoming more and more popular among the younger generations. So if or when Bernie Sanders drops out of the race in 2016... In 2020, in 2024, in 2028, if you think those ideas are going anywhere, you're crazy. Those ideas are simply waiting to be mobilized in a massive fashion. And it's the same with the ideology behind Trump's campaign. The idea that those political thoughts, programs, suggestions are going to disappear when Trump disappears, if indeed he ever disappears, is absurd. Those ideas are here to stay. They've always been with us. They've reared their heads in different ways. No matter whether we're talking about Gold, Barry Goldwater or whether we're talking about Richard Nixon or whether we're talking about Bush and Cheney or whether we're talking about Reagan or whether we're talking about Donald Trump, those sort of fascistoid reactionary, neoconservative, regressive views have always been harbored by tens of millions of Americans. How do we keep those people at bay? How do we keep those ideas at bay? How do we keep legislation that would promote those ideas at bay? That's the question people on the left need to ask. Just to remind folks, you're listening to Meditations and Molotovs. I am your host, Vince Emanuele. This is the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. Those ideas are here with us forever. 
and Donald Trump supporters aren't going anywhere. So there's been a lot of, I think, naive views and a lot of naive analysis surrounding what's going to happen when or if Donald Trump loses the race. It's, you know, people are hoping, oh, well, if he loses, we'll just get him out of here and, you know, we'll move on and we'll progress. And once the baby boomers die, these ideas will die with them. I do think that when the baby boomers are gone, that we are going to have a more progressive society, but only with regard to social programs and social ideas. And by social programs, I don't mean social economic programs. I mean gay marriage, medical marijuana, views on race, ethnicity, and so forth, sexuality, gender. Those things are going to continue to progress. People will continue to be progressive in, the, in that regard. We're not going to go backward when it comes to the views of the vast majority of Americans on, say, the LGBT community. Those views aren't – okay, is there legislation in places like North Carolina and so on? Sure. But does that re legislation represent the majority of its people? Absolutely not. Not even a good portion, really. But what that doesn't mean in the future is that there's automatically going to be an entire crop of people who are going to think critically about capitalism or think critically about militarization or U.S. empire or the environment. People have taken simple answers. You know, I hear, I've heard it throughout the election. It's actually kind of sad because I give people a lot of credit. I automatically assume people are extremely smart, so I give them tons of credit until they prove me otherwise. I think that's the way we should operate. But I've heard nothing but easy answers. This is part of the problem with elections. Because the narrative is so condensed, because you have to have this sort of distilled version of idea ideological programs and thoughts, ideas, suggestions, these things are all sort of distilled for the public. And so when we're talking about economic issues, people are told, we'll simply live. And this is there's my, my, sort of the critical angle I would take on the Sanders campaign. And it's not his fault, and it's not the fault of the campaign, and we shouldn't be blaming people and all of this. But here's the problem. The problem is that now tens of millions of Americans are led to believe that if we get an economic system, a political system capable of providing what people had in the 1940s or capable of providing what people currently have in, say, Scandinavian countries, leave aside the like drastic differences between Scandinavian countries and the U.S. And here I think that there are legitimate critiques of Sanders' uh, constant referencing of the Scandinavian model. Not to mention, of course, if you ask people in Africa what they think of Nokia and Finland and Norway and the way that they have been consistently exploited throughout time by these countries, and even currently, currently so. Leaving all of that aside, people are led to believe that that's going to solve all of their problems. 
that, oh, this is what we need. I've seen it and I've heard it already. It's in the saddest part, of course, is when you hear some of these supporters being interviewed and they're asked, well, what, you know, what do you want? Well, we're going to tax the rich. We want to educate. Of course, those are good things. You know, so let's back up. Of course, those are good things. Of course, people should have access to health care, no matter what. No questions asked. Of course, people should be able to educate themselves without going into massive amounts of debts. No questions asked. Of course, people should at least make a living wage so they can provide for the family and not live paycheck to paycheck and under constant stress, almost debilitating financial stress. Of course. However, what's the next step? And why is it that it seems to me like we're moving backwards? So we've been moving backwards in some ways because the right wing has thoroughly destroyed the social welfare state in the United States, has turned the state apparatus into a completely militarized entity, virtually incapable of providing a decent living or social programs to those in need because it serves a different function, namely that of militarization. But leaving that aside, ideologically, what does this mean? What are we asking for? So we have a generation of people who are simply saying we want what our grandparents had. Yes, we want, okay, yes, we want more tolerance. Yes, we want uh, less racism. Yes, we want people to be able to smoke dope. We want people to be able to get married. We want people, people to be able to use bathrooms or whatever it is people want. Okay, that's great. What are you going to do about the capitalist system? Is there any serious conversation about this? No, no. And don't, the people who are going to argue otherwise, I think should just stop. Let's recognize the Sanders campaign for what it is. Let's recognize that it's a great opportunity for folks. But let's simultaneously recognize its limitations. And if we're not able to simultaneously recognize its limitations and the limitations of doing work within the electoral system, then I don't know what we're doing. And I have the same argument or the same complaint for my friends on the left who have sort of outwardly and openly and unapologetically rejected the Sanders campaign without offering a viable alternative. What's the alternative that the left is offering right now? I've heard it over and over and over again from people that I actually tremendously respect. I don't respect their position on, on this, but I do respect their positions on any number of issues, and, and they are completely wrong to tell people to not vote for Sanders or to not get involved with Sanders' campaign so they can get involved with the Green campaign. What Green campaign is there for Jill Stein? Be lucky if more than a half a million Americans vote for her. Lucky if a half a million Americans vote for her. She's not even on the ballot in over 25 states. Does that mean people shouldn't work to get her on the ballot? No, I'm not saying that. But to tell people that, oh, well, when Sanders drops out or if he gets beat or when he gets beat, etc., that they should simply show up and vote for Jill Stein is the biggest cop-out, easy answer sort of BS that I've ever heard. There is no support for the Green Party. The Green Party in this country is dead. Maybe it was never even alive, but it's definitely dead now. So for those of you who are out there listening or for those of you who continue to pour 
tons of time and energy into the Green Party, thinking that in any way, shape, or form what you're doing is any more um, revolutionary or any more uh, serious or strategic or radical or worthwhile than the people who are organizing within the Democratic Party. Completely insane. I think both. I think both ideas or both uh, forms of organizing are a waste of time. This campaign, to me, seems to be an exception. Most of the people who are showing up to the events, and this is proven both through the polling data, the exit polling data, and also various studies, so objective research, but also just anecdotally, I can tell you from traveling around the country and from going to different events here locally, that a good portion of the people who are engaged with this campaign otherwise wouldn't be engaged, wouldn't be showing up to vote. In that way, it's a lot like Nader's campaign. It's a lot of people who are out and about in the streets and supporting Sanders that otherwise would never have been engaged to begin with or never even bothered to show up, wouldn't even have voted, care less. So, you know, both sides to me need to wake up. The people who are unapologetically supporting Bernie Sanders without criticism and just continue to post things on my social media pages like hashtag Bernie or bust or hashtag feel the burn and this or that, you know, grow up, get serious, get serious. This isn't about Bernie. This isn't about these individuals and these, I give a shit about Bernie Sanders personally or what his background is or where he comes from or whether he likes to eat chicken fingers on the weekends or whether he likes to watch basketball. I could care less about any of that. Bernie Sanders dropped dead tomorrow, I wouldn't shed a tear. What we need to be focused on is how to use this campaign as an opening, as a tool, as a conduit to reaching regular people who had otherwise never been engaged with radical forms of politics. That's it. That's simple to me. And uh, the flip side, of course, is let's stop pretending like Jill Stein or the Green Party is some kind of a viable alternative because it isn't. And in the 10 years that I've been active, I have yet to be approached by a Green Party person. I have yet to be engaged with any form of Green Party activism because there's absolutely no, I see no hope or no, you know, sort of victories on the horizon for that party. So let's take a step back and regroup. I mean, this is another thing that I think people need to really focus on. Stop getting stuck. Stop getting stuck in the same old routine. This is the this is really and this happens a lot with liberal and progressive and leftist or left-leaning people. They get stuck. They keep doing the same things. And we know that doing the same things and expecting different results is the definition of insanity. It's the very definition. Yet so many smart people I know continue to do the same things hoping for different results. It's like this it's like the socialist and the communist and the anarchist groups, the sectarian groups, particularly the socialist brand. The same I mean, you know how sad it is to see a 55, 65 year old activist still trying to sell the same socialist worker magazine for two bucks. Their numbers haven't gone anywhere. Membership has never gone up. 
the organization has yet to run any parties or uh, any viable candidates for any major office, and maybe they have a little in at a couple of unions, and that's the best that they've done in 40 years, and they're supposed to be happy about that? These people continue to show up. Hey, someday, brother, someday, sister, the revolution's coming, comrade, someday. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's not guaranteed. It's not going to come. Whatever they think is going to happen isn't happening, obviously. So, you know, it's the same with the Green Party people. You continue to organize for a Green Party that goes nowhere. Stop. Regroup. Do something different. We only have one life. This is, for me, the people who are trying to, to reform the Green Party or reform the Democratic Party or reform capitalism or any of this nonsense... It's, the mo- it's like the epitome of conservative thought. This is the epitome of the times that we live in, is this sort of thinking. We're going to reform things. Okay, let's reform things. That's fine. Nothing inherently wrong with that. But that is the end-all, be-all here. That's the problem. The problem is, pl- I I'm, I'm, I'm understand when people say, hey, we need to do both reform and revolution. I'm for all of it. I've always been that way. I've always felt that way. I think it's a false dichotomy. But when people all or primarily and then only focus on the reform part without thinking about what is a bigger, broader plan, political program, strategy, and what tactics are we going to use to truly create a new society, new institutions, new economy, new relationships, new culture, new social mores, and so forth. For those who are seeking or to drastically change society, or for those who understand that without a radical shift or without a major schism in the way that we do business, then none of us are going to survive, particularly because of climate change and environmental devastation. For those of us who want something more, We need to be having the conversation. We need to talk about it openly and honestly. Because there's tons of critiques out there, folks. I mean, tons of critiques. But what are the solutions? Or not solutions. Let Let me rephrase that because I don't like the idea that we're going to solve anything. These problems will last with us for the rest of our lives. How do we mitigate them? How do we improve upon them? How do we shift the conversation? How do we make sure that those who are least among us are taken care of? How do we be good stewards of the environment? How do we create different relationships with living creatures on this planet? Those are major questions we have to ask. Those are major questions, major issues we have to tackle. But the only way we're going to do so is if we talk openly about this. And right now, the problem is, on the left, we don't know what we want. The people who are mobilized are saying, Bernie's people are saying, we want a Scandinavian model. Okay, that's fine. Even if you do get it here, then what? Where do you go next? What's the deal? Is that the end, is that the end of history? For those on the left who are saying Bernie's campaign is sort of a uh, reformist dream and it's silly and it's not truly socialist, and so what do you want? What do people want? Go through, and this would be a challenge to those who are listening today. Go to every progressive website you can find. Do it on a Sunday. Do it on a Saturday morning. 
Go to every progressive website you can find. Znet, Counterpunch, Common Dreams, Truth Out, Truth Dig, The Nation, the whole range, anywhere from the sort of liberal progressive end to the far left, if that's what you want to call it. Go to every single one of those websites and just look at the first 10 articles, let's say, that are posted. Hell, look at the first five articles that are posted on each site. And you tell me if you can find more than 5% of the articles out of all of the articles combined on all of those sites, the first five that you see. Let me know if you can find a few, maybe a few, that will talk about what we want and how it is we're going to get it. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of articles written every single day by leftists and progressives in the United States and around the world. But particularly, let's focus here in the United States. Thousands every day. And you know how many of those talk about what it is we want and how we're going to get it? Very few. You know how many of those talk about political organizing, tactics, strategy, how to develop program, what that means, what that looks like? Very few. Very few. Be tough to even find them because they barely exist. And in fact, the one site that I'll give a ton of credit for for doing that has been Z Communications and ZNet and Z Magazine. One of their sort of stated goals has been to get activists and organizers and scholars and thinkers and authors and artists around the world to not only be capable of making a substantial critique, because now the big thing, if you read, um, who would it be? Some of the examples of this. Henry Giraud is a good example. Everything is about neoliberalism. And yes, of course we should talk about neoliberalism. But did the United States not have problems prior to 1980? Or prior to some people would mark maybe the beginning of the 70s, maybe 1972, 73, as maybe the beginning of the neoliberal period, the end of the Bretton Woods period, the end of the Cold War era? But did our problems begin in the mid-70s or in the early 80s with Thatcher and Reagan? Of course they didn't. You know, so yes, we should focus on neoliberalism, understand what it is, but this constant hearkening back to that as being the source of our problems is disingenuous. It's naive and it's, to be quite honest with you, I think a simplistic way of, of looking at the world. That's the same with the people who, you know, my Marxist friends, my traditional left friends who argue that capitalism is the source of our problems. It is the current it is the system under which we currently live. It is the modern economic system in which anyone who's listening to this, including myself, obviously has grown up within. Several generations of our family have lived within it. But is capitalism the source of our problems? I don't think so. Did the humanity not have problems before the eighteen hundreds? So we need to think about these things in a really nuanced fashion. And we need to continue to be critical and think about 
the foundations of our problems. Not the easy answers, because I hear nothing but easy answers from people I speak with, which, of course, makes me only want to ask them more and more questions. But we need to talk about what we want. We need to talk about how we're going to get it. And we need to, I think, truly encourage people to think about alternatives and to express those alternatives openly and honestly with their friends and family and coworkers and neighbors and so forth. That should be encouraged. That sort of imagination is sometimes smashed from our heads as children. You know, that sort of encouragement to think about alternatives, to think about a different world, what that world would look like. That's what we should be encouraging people to do. And those things will never happen through electoral campaigns or media campaigns or the right marketing toys or the right social media campaign. That's only going to happen through serious reflection. It's only going to happen through genuine, open, honest, vulnerable conversations that people are going to be having, continue to have, and will hopefully have for many, many, many years to come. So next week, I believe we'll be talking with my good friend Thomas Frank, who's a great environmentalist and organizer, a local organizer here in the Chicagoland region. He's going to talk to us about the Break Free Midwest, Break Free from Fossil Fuels event. There's several other things happening this week. Check out my social media pages. You can just go to Vince Emanuele. That's E-M-A-N-U-E-L-E. Just punch it into Google. You'll find my Facebook page. You'll find my Twitter and all that other jazz. So it's been a pleasure, folks. I always look forward to speaking with folks. I I enjoy their feedback. I look forward again to speaking with you next Monday. You're listening to Meditations and Molotovs. I am your host, Vince Emanuele. This is the Progressive Radio Network. You can check out Meditations and Molotovs every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time at prn.fm. We don't know the contrast, does we do?